lay bare and empty. Also, I'm becoming too snake with it. It doesn't. It sounds like I'm just a apocalypse hero and not a um, announcer. Uh, in a world where society itself has failed, four warriors stand against the darkness. Beacons of truth. Those four are Santo Versus. Yeah. How's oh, that? I liked it. <laughs> okay, well, whatever. Uh, hi, everybody. It's Santo Versus. Um, I realized that I think what's strange about this for me is I've never had to watch myself make a Santo Versus. And I feel like this is a little unnerving for me. Especially since I have to watch myself from two angles. Anyway, I'm Billy Pilgrim, your host, and uh, this is Santo Versus Season 2, Corona Edition. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host. Griselda Hex. Maria Felix. Cardamom Sunbeam, or Cardi for short. And we're here to talk about some stuff that's on our mind about this whole uh, dang pandemic. Um, But before we get into that, um, let's play a uh, game. Music sting. 90 second hot take lightning round. That's right. It's time for a whole new segment of Santo Versus, the 90 second hot take lightning round. I'll explain the rules to you all. You each will have 90 seconds to deliver your spiciest takes, your hottest takes on um, what you think is going to happen thanks to coronavirus. Um, Am I missing anything, uh, Maria? No, I think that that's, I think that uh, one thing that you're missing is that it doesn't have to be that spicy. It can also just be about how you're feeling, how many times a day you cry, um, what kind of uh, plants you've been uh, cooking up and uh, stuff like that. Well, do we want that to be in the hot take lightning round or shall we just ask each other how we're doing first? I think it should just be combined into one. Oh man, I don't know. Okay, well, who's first? All right, we can do we can do just hot takes if you prefer. Oh man, that means I have to come up with a conspiracy theory really quickly. I mean, we're living in one. All right, I guess <laughs> that means it's me. Um, I'll, I'll do the hot takes first. Ninety seconds on the clock. Begin your hot take now. All right, thank you so much. So I would like to believe that. Um, what all the leftists are saying that this is going to give us an opportunity to rebuild a better society, that it's really like making people aware that um, capitalism, it has created a lot of inequities and a lot of problems. Um, But it's very difficult to believe that for a variety of reasons. And my um, hottest take is that aside from revealing the ills of capitalism, um, this is also showing us how amongst um, leftists and amongst progressives, there is still this desire to sort of police, uh, to police each other and to punish each other. And I think that um, 
like these uh, sort of more dangerous small ways in which some of us are leaning further right than I would have anticipated uh, is really one of the more horrifying parts of coronavirus so far. Um, so that's my that's my take for now. A one minute and 10 second take. If you had to sum it up in a couple words. I'm feeling sad and pessimistic. Any takers for the next? I'll go next. All right. 30, uh, 90 seconds on the clock. Begin your hot take now. Okay. My hot take is equally pessimistic. And I think that this will allow for um, conservative politicians to fearmonger, which has been the most successful avenue I think for the right to gain momentum and ultimately I think this is the best thing that Trump could basically ask for wouldn't surprise me if in fact since this is a hot take I'm going to guess that um and I already believed he would be reelected, but this kind of is the last nail in the coffin um ooh, not a great metaphor for these times <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I think that uh, Trump gets elected off of this. Uh, communism does worse than ever. And uh, capitalism rages even harder. And that's my hot take. Have you had to sum it up in a couple words? Capitalism wins again. Okay. I think I'm going to do my lightning round hot take next. 90 seconds starting now. Um, I completely disagree. I think this is the end of all liberalism. I think that um, we have been um, co constantly on the verge of disasters, which seemed as if they were going to disrupt things going back to usual. We've always been like, are things going to go back to normal or are they not? And we on the left have been flirting with this idea, uh, this uh, desire for things not to go back to normal. I think that this is the event that's going to disable the return to normal. We are seeing a catastrophic change in economic conditions. This is going. Jeff Bezos already made like twenty-four billion off of this thing. I think we are going to see businesses consolidate, political power shift towards the right, especially as the right um, runs on optimism, i.e. they're going to bolster the welfare state. And so we're going to see conservative ideology running on a platform of expanding the welfare state amidst un uh, uh, wealth consolidation like we've never seen before and untold levels of unemployment and economic pessimism, all of which is going to lead us to, if not neo-fascism, some kind of post-liberal right-leaning controlled econ economic conditions. And pause one minute, 29 seconds. And your sum up? Sum up. Um, um, from liberalism to the right. Nice. Okay, well, my, um, my hot take um, is sort of a summary slash expansion of, of y'all's um 
And I've included some spoilers for any of you who are consuming vast amounts of media at this time, as I am. Um, my partner and I were recently watching the um, very, very new <coughs> show, The Hunters, um, produced, I, be- I really pre- produced and or directed, I'm not 100% sure of his role, by Jordan Peele, um, about Nazi hunters. Uh, and I won't go into the whole plot, but the, but the spoiler is that the Nazis are um, in America cooking up a plan um, in the 1970s to produce and distribute a virus via corn syrup. Um, and so that, that way it'll get to get concern, consumed by all the poor and non-white Americans that they want to kill. Um, and we were watching this at the very beginning of quarantine. Um, so it just seemed very, um, it hit close to home. Um, and so the, um, I don't know, that didn't really develop into a, a very articulated hot take, but my sum up is the fourth right. Well, that might be the hottest take yet. (laughs) Um, So uh, one thing I noticed from all of ours that kind of fits into something that we were planning on talking about is this idea of, um, we had planned on talking about accelerationism and what it means on the left and what it means on the right. and that we might discuss that. And one thing that we all addressed in our spicy takes was like, that something's changing, what's next? And so um, depending on what you guys think, one question that um, I, I feel like that's where we should start. So we've got this idea of change, uh, something's changing, right? I don't know. Um, yeah, um, before we get into that, into the nitty gritty of that, can someone just quickly explain what accelerationism is? The way I understand it is that um, when, and I'm, I'm, I guess I've never looked this up, but the way that I've seen it employed rhetorically is that when you've got um, like complete competing ideologies, the accelerationist viewpoint is you want things to get so bad that the um, that things as they are cannot go on, and and hopefully give you an opportunity for the next for the next phase for for your po- political ideology to like take over. But. Did anybody look that up while I was? I think that's a good definition. Um, I I think that one aspect of it, since we're talking about both left and right accelerationism, one aspect of it is that, um, so leftist accelerationism, from what I understand, is this idea that capitalism will burn itself out because of the variety of contradictions that it holds within itself, right? Um, From what I've heard, and I hope someone will add into this, um, right-wing accelerationism is not about a current system that is unsustainable burning itself out. It's about this view that in the long-term, white ethno-states will sort of reestablish themselves. So it's not necessarily about... um, it's not that we are in a in a bad phase that we need to move through more quickly 
so that we can come up with something else. It's about this natural arc wherein things are sort of going to get better and better by their standards. And so to just get there as quickly as possible. I think that this there's a lot of overlap with that, but I think that there's a kind of... Um, I think that there's a distinction in that the right-wing one appears to be more optimistic with regards to its own long-term view, if that makes sense. But I don't know, if y'all want to jump in and nuance that a little bit, um, otherwise we can just get started talking about uh, how we see accelerationism working with coronavirus now. I think that you're completely right, um, Maria. One thing that I've noticed that's part of um, right-wing, like, online platform type discussions is this idea of, like, I think they call it the red pill moment, a reference to um, the Matrix. Um, But it's more about, it's more so about um, white Americans waking up to these, like, naturally or these natural truths. Um, So I think that that does differ broadly from left-wing accelerationism that um, I think that uh, on the one hand, well, I guess I should say that I think that both sides see um, the logical conclusion of their ideological platforms as being inevitable. But I think just the... um, ways in which that endpoint is, um, I guess, achieved is quite different. I don't know. So accelerationism today, who's doing it? What does it mean? Where have you guys encountered an accelerationist idea? Have you seen it happening in coronavirus? I don't know if it's precisely accelerationist, um, at least explicitly um, or in its motivations, but I definitely have seen, I mean, there's been a ton of like evangelicals, um, for example, who um, claim that they're protected by the blood of Christ and so are going out um, and continuing to do in-person church gatherings um, during this time. Um, And, you know, I, I, you know, we can look at them and, and definitely think, well, that's really ignorant. You're just going to spread the virus more quickly. Um, but, you know, I think they ha- they do have this idea that, like, they will somehow um, serv- not only survive this pandemic, but also, like, bring about their sort of um, ideal world or, or existence um, by, like, having faith during this time and that they'll be saved from the virus um, in that way. Um, yeah. It's kind of an, it's kind of another facet or another contour to this topic um, and thinking about the right as well. Um, and I'm, th- I'm thinking of like extremely far right people who think that like the alt right is not like rightist enough. Um, I think that um, as opposed to what, what Maria, dang, we got to believe it, what Maria was outlining um, about this kind of optimism, I think that there's, like, still 
a pessimistic side to things. Um, and I think that this can be seen on like in, in a lot of individuals, not even individuals who might identify their personal politics as right or conservative, um, sort of this like defeatist attitude where like we're all headed towards a demise that Western politics is completely corrupt anyways. And there's like no chance of, um, renewing it or redeeming it in any sense. And, um, um, I've, I've read a couple of articles about, um, especially like white supremacist shooters who are not necessarily trying to accelerate, um, the movement of right-wing politics, but really just so as much chaos and disorder as possible to basically like bring an end to the to what the West has been in general, like sort of like more of like creates the ashes from which a Phoenix can arise. Yeah. I, um, I'm looking at this quote right now, um, from this article about how white supremacists see coronavirus as an opportunity. And, um, it has this quote from a white supremacist who has a podcast and he says, um, we've been talking about accelerationism. We've been talking about the fact that a complex society, a globalized world, it's all very unsustainable. And the moment that the rubber really hits the road, things start falling apart. And um, just thinking of the, the really racist and very xenophobic things um, that I've heard just like in the street, um, and also obviously, you know, coming, uh, out of, you know, presidential, like white house briefings. Um, it seems like this really, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for us as leftists to see this as a huge opportunity, but in the same way that there is this, um, impending collapse of liberalism, or at least it seems that way as Billy has pointed out in, uh, his hot takes, um, 92nd thing. Um, they also definitely see it as a possibility as well. Well, like, what is it that's unique about this moment that you think, like, okay, so we've been talking about right-wing ideology, which has gone on about accelerationism for a while. And there's always been anti-capitalist accelerationism. What's different about this? What's particular about it now? Why, why do we think it's important enough to talk about now? Yeah, I think that um, one thing is that the anticipated um, unemployment rates for the United States is going to be at 30% unemployment, right? Um, that means that we are like on the verge of an economic collapse and we are just seeing to the horizon of it right now. Um, and, you know, when things are in such a state of instability, already before this, right, it was like half of U.S. adults could not have a $400 emergency without having to dip into their credit or ask people for money, ask like friends and family for money. Um, and so it makes sense that it's almost, you know, it's, it's very close to that percentage. It's like if that amount of people have now lost their ability to pay rent, um, we're now going to be in a part where it's like 30 to 50% of people are about to be evicted from their homes, are unable to buy food, keep on paying for, um, for electricity and water. And so there's that sense that like, well, something has to change. Even if 
all that is changing is that a government response is giving us the bare minimum to keep on meeting our needs. That's still a really significant change. So is it good or bad for political progress? I think that um, if we look at historical precedents for this moment, and I especially want to engage with what Maria was saying about unemployment, um, probably the nearest in terms of like economical disasters that we could compare it to would be the Great Depression. Um, so like nearly a century ago at this point, like 90 something years, um, we had an economic fallout that resulted in, um, I think I looked up the number earlier out of curiosity and I think it was under 30%. I want to say it was like 25% or something like that. Mm -hmm. 25. Um, there is no real, there's a cultural memory that exists um, sort of generationally. Um, like my parents were brought up by their parents who experienced or lived through parts of or were like young children or born during um, the Depression era. But that's far removed enough that I think that it's very difficult for um, people like you and me to um, be able to imagine what a what an experience that is that um, just rife with destruction can be like and what the answer can be and of course then one immediately starts thinking about the new deal which is something that is sort of part of American rhetoric right now with um, the green new deal being discussed broadly Okay. But my question is, like, so we all seem to acknowledge that there's, we acknowledge that there's some kind of political change, and we acknowledge that there's this idea of accelerationism. Is accelerationism good or bad? Like, what is the impact of this idea right now? Like, if we want something leftist to come out of this, like what should our attitude be towards the collapse or potential collapse of the state? Yeah, I, um, I'm against accelerationism. I, um, I, so you, you started off by asking, like, where have we encountered this? And um, I, the, the, you know, the first time that I ever encountered, you know, maybe I'm late, but the first time I ever encountered it was um, when Zizek said that he would vote for Trump if he were a U.S. citizen. And I thought that that was a really selfish and ridiculous and elitist um, thing to say, right? Because I was thinking, like, this is going to really impact, um, you know, Mexican uh, and other Latin American immigrants. I'm saying Mexican because I'm, that's where my family's from, but you know, um, Latin American immigrants, um, it's going to impact Muslims. It's going to impact, like all of these people are going to have a worse quality of life. And Zizek doesn't care about that because <laughs> he just cares about his like fun international um, communist project, right. Or post-capitalist project or whatever. And so he I remember with a book about the coronavirus, didn't he? Yes, pandemic. Um, and so like, 
And so I remember thinking, like, that was the first time that I, like, thought about, I didn't even know it had a name. I didn't even know it was called accelerationism. Um, and now, um, you know, I feel like there are a lot of people um, with the November election coming up thinking that a vote for Biden will be a return to normalcy, which it cannot be, as we've already more or less mentioned. Um, but then thinking that, to not vote at all, or in fact, voting for Trump is somehow going to be able to speed things up. So bringing us back to that Zizek Trump vote, or um, at least a vote against neoliberalism. Um, uh, I mean, neoliberalism in the in the Democrat sense. Um, I am against it because I, you know, we see who's being impacted by things now, and to speed things up, maybe we would be able to form something at the end of it. But it, it, to start off with, it's really throwing a lot of people under the bus. Secondly, it's teleological. And I hate that idea that the future is already decided, particularly when there are so many different existing points of view that we simply cannot communicate with or get to educate or um, you know, include in our vision for the future when we're working that quickly. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I also am against it for the fact that um, just so many people are already dying. We already know that um, non-white Americans and people and people with disabilities, people um, in lower from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are already more vulnerable. And so sacrificing that amount of people, um, which we'll get into like the sort of war rhetoric surrounding the virus, but sacrificing that amount of people um, for the so-called greater good um, is really question ethically ethically questionable. Um, in addition, like we've already talked about on on some of our past episodes, how difficult it is to mobilize people, or how difficult it, it was before this this virus happened to mobilize people, um, just as things already were, uh, and they were already pretty fucking bad. Um, and so I just I think the right tends to d- rely on and, and um, reproduce strategies that that intentionally immobilize people, either through like promoting lack of education or lack of um, community. Um, and so, if if we accelerate that, then it's again just going to make it even harder for people to mobilize. Like, I don't I don't know if having ha- certainly it, it will be really shitty and maybe make people um question capitalism but i don't know if if they would be if they would feel empowered under that such those circumstances to actually perform action and movement against capitalism if that makes sense let me ask you guys this then so um we acknowledge that one aspect one one negative aspect of having an accelerationist out outlook or perspective or political motivations that it seems to um, disregard the needs of the disenfranchised and the most disempowered, the furthest from power. Inversely, it seems to me intuitively that we shouldn't react like the opposite way where we're like, okay, well, look, like we just have to do whatever it takes to like hold to like go back to what things were like before Trump or before coronavirus. We just need to like get back to normal, just like 
open everything up and adjust some things here and there. Like it seems to me intuitively on some level that like we should, that like to say, let's just return to normal is like the other, like the nega version of accelerationism. And so my question is, should we um, have that kind of perspective? If not, why not? And does it neglect people in the same ways that accelerationism does? But why do you think, I mean, certainly I don't, I, I agree with everybody's hot takes that like we're not, we're going to return to a normal in the sense of like this is, things are going to still be right wing. They may even be more right wing, but I don't know. I don't know. The concept of returning to me is... I, don't, I, I think that we have rightly identified a return to normal is impossible. Right. But in the same way that we're thinking about accelerationism as an idea, I think return to normal is also a really big idea mm-hmm. right now. Maybe mm-hmm. we could just unpack that also. Mm-hmm. I think the opposite of acceleration is not to go back, but to move slowly okay don't be a pedant i'm not i'm not um playing games here i'm thinking of like um there's this podcast that i listened to it used to be called the healing podcast and is now called the irresistible i really like it and one thing that they said that i thought made no sense sometimes it's too new agey for me and so one thing that they said that i didn't think made sense was that they were like we have to move slowly to work quickly um there's an equivalent translation uh, that's like a Spanish idiom. That's like, despacio que voy de prisa, right? So like, slow down, because I'm in a rush. Um, and when I heard that, and I was like, that's stupid. But it really resonated, it really stuck with me. Um, and so, Billy, I was thinking of that, um, since we've already brought up Zizek, that Zizek thing that you say, where you're like, well, don't act, think, you know? And so I think that um, we have to you know, we can't slow down time and we can't slow down all of the weird policy shit that's about to happen. And we can't slow down the fact that our rent is due in 11 days, right? Like this is stuff that we can't control. But I think in terms of just like um, being like trying to resist the urge to panic and trying instead to be like methodical about like, okay, well then what can we do? And I think um, Cardamom has brought up this issue of like um, how right now and in the future, it's hard in the future as we're, as we're perceiving it in an accelerated future, it's hard to mobilize. Um, so I think like taking, taking the time that we currently have to think about like, what are the basic building blocks that we do need to mobilize um, would be a way of trying to, to slow things down a little bit. You know, um, something that Cardamom mentioned um, was like, like religious uh, uh, people um, convinced by their religious perspectives on this, that they should um, flaunt the safety convention, conventions put in place by state apparatuses. Hi, everybody. Pardon the interruption. Billy Pilgrim here. I just wanted to chime in and correct a little mistake I made. The plural of apparatus is apparatus, because like the word campus, 
Uh, these form the second declension of Latin nouns, the plural of which we have lost. This has been the Billy Pilgrim's Fact Corner. I now return you to Santa Versus. Um, and it makes me think of um, a story that somebody introduced me to earlier today, where like, um, so I'm sure you guys have all heard um, about like people going out and protesting, like reopen the, reopen the economy. I want to like go back to work and stuff like that. And uh, somebody showed me um, a mutual friend of ours was like, you know, I, I respect. Uh, um, my point is, is that somebody was watching these protests and they were like, look, I, um, I think that these people are wrong, but I admire their, but I always respect somebody's right to protest. Ah, yes. We had been talking about this before. A friend of ours um, posted, uh, you know, in the in the vague booking way, um, uh, something that said, protest is essential work, in parentheses, even when I disagree with the protesters. Right. And so I bring this up in relationship to what Cardamom was, to, to Cardamom's anecdote, because it made me think, like, for one thing, I fundamentally disagree with this perspective. Like, just because somebody's protesting, like, like I always agree with somebody exercising their right to protest. Like, that seems absurd to me. Like, people protest, like, gay marriage or racial integration. You know, like, I don't think that it's good that these people are exercising their right to protest. I think their rights should be suppressed um, with political power. Um... But it did make me think, like, it's interesting to see these people, like, out there protesting to reopen the government or going to church in defiance of whatever. Because it is like, you know, these people probably, if they're out there protesting, if their lives are so hard that they're out there protesting, they're probably either at the very low end of the professional middle class or in a somewhat, if not severely threatened economic position. And they see that their rent is coming due. They don't have the money. Maybe they lost their job and they don't have health care anymore. Or maybe they have rent and they have health care. But, like, they're stuck at home and there's, like, nothing. They can't go out and see anything. There's nothing to, like, provide. Like, they know that nothing is going to come anytime soon and relieve them. And so, like, I, I think it's a shame that people are, viewing this through the lens of like let me get back to work reopen the economy instead of demanding that we have a stronger welfare state to take care of things but um maria pointed out to me that people aren't stupid and they can read the writing on the wall and um like if they know that the government's not going to do anything about this then they're just going to go out and demand what they think is most likely which is the economy is going to reopen and so to that end I'm very sympathetic, but I saw a poster that somebody was carrying. And I know that we've all seen a lot of images like this, but I saw one where a woman was like holding a beverage that she had bought from a Baskin Robbins. She's standing in front of the Baskin Robbins and she's holding a sign that says, give me liberty or give me death. And it's kind of funny to imagine somebody like looking at a Baskin Robbins and being like, I will have vids or you will kill me. <laughs> um, but this does make me think of 
of the way that we have been talking about this pandemic and this problem and and the failures of the state and the gestures of the state that this is a battle this is a war um a war you say and war i say and so i have some ideas about this but um you know, uh, let's let's start simply. Do you guys think that this is a war that we're fighting? I really like this question. But before we get into that, and maybe related to it, I, um, you know, we were just talking about this earlier about this protest, protest to reopen the economy, um, really inspired by Trump's tweets to like liberate different states, right? Um, the idea of liberation here, uh, everyone who died in 1789, opening up the, ba- you know, like everyone's like turning in their graves. Um, but uh, I read a, um, something that a friend of mine posted that said that this might be an example of astroturfing. And so really quick, general ideas on that. Do you all think that that's a possibility? Because I was before, like I was really, I'm very naive. I tend to assume that people aren't uh, fucking with me. I tend to assume that people are engaging like in, in, um, in goodwill and not like in good faith. Um, and when I saw that about like, well, these are like, these are protesters who are being bankrolled by, you know, whatever corporation, just like the uh, Tea Party was back oh. in the day. Right. And then being covered by the media as a grassroots movement. Thoughts? Yeah, I think that um, I think that um, two things. One, if it's if it's true, does it change anything? Um, and uh, two. I don't know, I, I, I find it very believable that. Because, like, oh God, I find each equally believable that this would be an attempt by corporations to, like, reopen the revenue flows. And I find it very believable that America, that U.S. Americans have no way of conceiving of this pandemic outside of its impact on liberal economics. That's why the astroturfing works so well. And sticking to our war metaphor, they are truly the mercenaries in this war. <laughs> um, yeah. So do you all want to get into this question of like the wartime rhetoric that's uh, happening around the virus? Sure. Do you guys feel like we're in a war? Hmm. I don't think that we're in a war against Corona. Do you think we're in a war against somebody else? Yeah. Is it me? I will take you down. I, think I will win. I, I have a laser. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we're at war against China more than anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you should have saved that for your spicy take. Speaking of conspiracy theories, that reminded me of like one of the ones that I sort of had thought of at the beginning was this like was that this was the battle to take down communism I mean, quote unquote communism if, if okay so here's where I'm coming at this from this is the direction um, I th- 
when I think of war as an art historian, I immediately think of propaganda. And I think that's probably likely because that's one of the central focuses of my dissertation, but also because that's the visual matter that emerges during wartime. And so I was thinking about um, some of the images, some of, some of the examples of propaganda posters that I've seen from World War I, especially in relation to tuberculosis and to um, the Spanish flu, which I wish were called something else because it started in the United States. But anyway, um, I was thinking about those posters and I was sort of looking over them leading up to this episode of Santo Versus. And I realized that um, both, in, in both cases, both in propaganda related to Spanish flu and to tuberculosis, um, there is a strong rhetoric of like we need to knock out both the scourge of the Germans and also this illness. And so these two things become like conflated completely. Um, and uh, it works nicely on a visual level and on a, on a, on a rhetorical level as well, um, because war is something that um, any lay person can understand on a conceptual level. Um, but so when I started looking at propaganda, um, that has emerged during this, um, this specific historical moment, um, first of all, the propaganda looks really different. Like you don't really have posters or things like that emerging that are like state sponsored. It's more, um, I'm more referring to like mainstream media. Um, what I noticed was there is, um, as, as often as Corona is mentioned, um, in the same breath as China, there's also a lot of imagery related to communism. And this is, I think, um, a strategy to really embed in the public, um, in the public sort of consciousness, um, that communism is what led to, uh, Corona. And so I think as much as like, um, we are needing to take precautions against transmitting corona and we're using the analogy of war to help people understand why those precautions are in place. I think that this analogy is also really important and, it, and really demonstrates um, the ideological warfare that we're currently participating in um, with China. I couldn't do that in a 90 second hot take, could I? <laughs> Well, you could have said we're in a war against China and just left it at that. <laughs> Maria, are we in a war? Um, I, uh, I very much accept um, uh, Griselda's view that, that we're in a war against communism. Uh, I think that the... the the way of living that this has led us all to experience has like really emphasized the aspects of capitalism and neoliberalism and these like deep seated values surrounding those ideologies that we already had. Like we are now more atomized, like literally, you know, we can't organize, you know, um, you, there's, 
there's no, it's more difficult to protest in the streets or to get together and like build community, right? People are, of course, still doing that. Here in St. Louis, um, Art House, which is a, a place for activists and artists, um, they hold um, a uh, sort of a, a free grocery um, thing and they are still getting their groceries from um, from different stores and making them available for free for the community. Um, they've just changed the way that they operate. People now wear masks and they come in in different turns. You know, there are um, protesters on the left who have sort of done like, you know, by parking their cars strategically, been able to shut off different streets. Um, but what the left so far thrives on is this like person to person, like, like, you know, local group activity. And right now we don't have that. Um, going back to what I said earlier about like, you know, trying to come up with ways to mobilize in this sort of like frozen time period, right. To like sort of think strategically and move slowly to consider like what are our next moves going to be. Um, I, uh, uh, I've been reading up on what um, disability activists have been doing for years and, you know, they have a lot of different um, suggestions for, um, for ways to organize, to be flexible with each other, um, to keep on participating um, politically. Um, and uh, I can um, send Billy the link to to some of that stuff for the show notes. Um, but um, yeah, I think that I think that m- maybe we didn't start off being in a war, but I think that it's certainly become one in a way against leftist values and leftist possibility more broadly. Yeah, um, I I would agree with that. Um... And I, I definitely think disability um, justice activism is is where we should be looking as well um, to try to find new methods of organizing, organi- or not new, but... Um, new to but us. New to us, right. Uh, methods of organizing that don't depend strictly upon um, public gatherings because I, people with disability justice activists have... Um, you know, rightly argued for some time that 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 also that very form of activism depends on certain capacities, um, physical, emotional, etc. Um, and so, you know, we need to rethink our ways of organizing, as as Maria mentioned. Um, in addition, like in response to the war, uh, the war discourse that's going on, I'll, I'll kind of go back to something I I discussed with y'all earlier in the week, and that. Um, I I think this war this war discourse operates strangely in that like we're supposed to all be united against the faceless enemy of the virus, but at the same time we're all kind of competing against each other for survival, supposedly. Um, and like who can get the most toilet paper? Um, and so like instead of that, I think it would be good to look towards just disability justice activism and and really um if not replace like try to try to just increase this idea of of interdependence um that is so prevalent to disability activism um and just like and, and to some extent it is it is there like even within sort of more centrist 
notions of, oh, well, we need to, like, honor the essential workers, like, food delivery people. Um, like, I've heard some of it, kind of, um, even in centrist media. Uh, but the way that it's expressed in that media is just, like, a sort of more symbolic, like, we need to just thank them and be really grateful instead of, like, actually giving them um, you know, a livable wage, for example, um, and other, other infrastructure and resources to support them. Um, so I think just like extending this idea of interdependence as sort of a more structural, um, phenomena would be, would be useful, but I'm not sure like how, how I might go about doing that when we are, as, as Maria mentioned, even more atomized now than we were before. I, um, I have, you know, when, when you were talking about that, I was thinking that, um, well, it, to get back to this question of like, well, are we in a war? And we started this off because we're sort of, uh, we started off sort of critiquing this wartime rhetoric. Um, and I think that the question of like, well, are we in one can lead us to sort of like abstract things, right? Like we are all for better or worse, American. And so we have this like desire to have war on abstract things for, for the pleasure of it. But thinking of wartime rhetoric, um, if we have people on the front lines, if we extend these metaphors, then like we're all soldiers, right? We're all soldiers who are not getting paid and do not have insurance or VA benefits. But, but then since, as Cardamom mentioned, it's like, okay, well, we're all like in it together, quote unquote, right? But at the same time, like, we're also in competition with each other, which is like, so we're soldiers who are being forced into friendly fire because of our future 30% unemployment rate. Like, if you just follow out the metaphor, um, it really leads you to some leftist place where, where you should desire um, where, where people, it's like, if they really thought about this, they should be making strong demands. Right. Well, I was thinking like, yeah, I think that we're in a war because um, it's being grossly mismanaged and the number one killer of U uh, S Americans is not the enemy, but uh, the inability to manage the situation on behalf of the U S government. <laughs> Our resident America war. Yeah. Maria, in the show notes, you had suggested, like, well, what if we viewed it with a different rhetoric, like hurricane? Uh, we're in a hurricane um, time. You expressed it better than that. But what if we, like, we're in a hurricane with... time? Yeah. yeah. Hurricane um, time. That's going to be the name of our hit single. Yeah. Um, hurricane so... time, baby. <laughs> Caught up in your loving. Winds are blowing. <laughs> New Santa versus singles out now. Um, but so I will whimsically, before we continue with our more seriously, a serious discussion, I will whimsically offer the name that my partner and I came up with to um, refer to this period because quarantine, I mean, it does realistically, it's a very dark time and we cry a lot. But we refer to it instead as cuddle, cuddle camp. Um, and so I offer that to <laughs> all of like a concentration camp. <laughs> it's camp like a like a go into the woods. <laughs> Not that kind of camp. You ruined our name, Maria. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
<laughs> and I was telling Billy that we're creating, we have taken up clay modeling, um, and we're creating a cute army of little like penguins and koalas and things made out of clay. An so. army of clay koalas. Yeah, they can't yeah. be a cute volunteer service corps. <laughs> <laughs> Building a cute army. Okay, okay. Instead of a cute army, it's going to be a cute collective. There we go. That's more leftist. <laughs> cute continuum. Uh, I had something to add about uh, my my hot take <laughs> that we're at war with China. I hope I am thinking that listeners are going to be hearing my dog snoring. Both my dogs are in here. And That's what that sound was. Yeah, <laughs> my dog snoring. Um, anywho, um, I was I was really struck by Biden's latest um, presidential campaign ad, which for me um, it was kind of like blowing up on Twitter because now I'm I think that I've figured out how Twitter works and I can like I've like I guess gotten to the point where I've. It's, it's streamlined now and showing me things that are interesting to me. But anyway, um, a lot of people on my, on my Twitter feed were like reacting really strongly to the video. And so I went ahead and watched it. And um, I noticed that at one point um, they played some footage of him, um, Biden saying in, I guess one of the um, nomination debates um the quote was something like, uh, in, in reference to China, we are going to need to be on the ground in your country. And this was like in January or February. And I think that that is so strongly like this, like idea of invasion, just, it, it just really, um, even from the left, uh, struck me as engaging with that wartime rhetoric, even before that wartime rhetoric was involved. And I think that that, um, that kind of language really reminds me of like centuries old um, kind of imperialism um, ideology, which is just this idea that our cultural counterparts or non-Westerners, um, scare quotes, uh, cannot govern themselves and are like more vulnerable to their baser instincts. And in, in this sense, I think that Biden was like, kind of pointing out this American phobia that communist states um, rely on censorship. And I, and that was an idea that I kind of wanted to think about a little bit more too, because um, there's been a lot of criticism um, about Trump censoring um, information about Corona leading up to um, when Fox news and everyone eventually started to really take it seriously. Um, but um, yeah, that, that, that just, we are going to need to be on the ground. It reminded me of like boots on the ground, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Billy. What were you going to say? If you have a thought, go ahead with it. I, I did have a thought. Um, I think then thinking about like the role of, um, you know, what Griselda just brought up is sort of this, like, gray point where the like metaphor touches the possibility of real soldiers right um and uh i was reading this cnn article about the wartime rhetoric um 
in it, they, they explain just like the most literal, I mean, obviously, right. It's like the most literal view of like, what is this for? And it's so that people understand to take things seriously. And so that people understand that sacrifices are to be expected. And we can, and perhaps have already touched a little bit on just like, who might these sacrifices be, right. Is like, is obvious to us. Um, but one thing toward the end of the article was um, that they were talking about how um, there was one base or something like that where there had been a couple um, cases of coronavirus already. And um, Captain Brett Crozier wrote in a memo to the Navy's Pacific Fleet, we are not at war. Sailors do not need to die. And um, and. This, I thought, was interesting because, like, yes, of course, people should be, you know, it's like everybody's in has their responsibility to keep whoever is under them as safe as possible, right? But thinking about it as the military, one thing that occurred to me, even really early on, it was like the first or second week of quarantine, and I was thinking... How okay? So in China at the time, this was um, mid March. Um, people were not allowed to leave their homes. How were they getting food? And um, I asked a friend of mine. She was like, "Well, it's like you know, basically like our version of the National Guard. There's um, also services like Instacart, and they're all being like mobilized." And I was thinking, like, why? isn't the military currently helping us or at least where there has been the most serious outbreak, like in New York city, like they already have a, but like a large group of trained people that they could easily teach how to like disinfect themselves and get ready for these sort of like handoff transitions to just be able to provide like basic necessities so that people could, you know, flatten the curve as quickly as possible. And so just thinking of like, you know, the, the possibility within this metaphor to like, you know, it, it has, basically it has all the fascistic aspects and none of the organized nation state aspects that might actually be able to help us through any of this. But anyway, Billy, did you want to follow up with something? That's actually a great lead into it because what I was going to say is like, so we've identified just to kind of push a little further on what you were saying. Maria, is um, like to kind of bring this question of like the military rhetoric into the last question of both like accelerationism and where do we see things going. I think that um, I I think that we can agree that um, that while the um, deployment of um, this military rhetoric um, was certainly intentional, that like it wasn't necessarily to the to the end of accomplishing anything other than like then like how can then either like how can America process like trauma outside of like a war military context and also like how can we construct a rhetorical framework where we can um, make people feel good about themselves, i.e. call them heroes or tell them they're making sacrifices without actually having to do anything for them, like expand the welfare state or provide um, more salient benefits for people in the front lines. In the front lines. But 
now this military rhetoric is here. And speaking of uh, Joe Biden and his recent uh, talking about things, <laughs> one thing he said recently was he criticized Trump and said, like, look, if you're going to call yourself a wartime president, you've got to act like a wartime president. And so I feel like, so Maria, you just mentioned the the military is 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 more than endowed with logistical and transportational systems to completely change the way that um, this pandemic is impacting people. That is, the military could mobilize its ability to su- to supply to the people. And I think that like one thing, it seems to me that that would be good if we use the centralized systems and material available to us just for the benefit of the people. However, I think, I think that if that happened, we would be on this podcast saying like, okay, well now we've got the military out in the streets, like knocking on people's doors and they're giving out supplies. But at the same time, it's like we're mobilizing the military domestically. And so my question is, do we see some, like, is this military rhetoric idle chat from an empty, from an empty and impotent administration to cover up things for things it's unwilling to do? Or is this the prelude to, like, maybe not a military junta here in the United States, but to some to, to some kind of movement towards overt fascism that we have not seen yet, or both, or neither? You know, that's a great question. I think it's so um, funny that you bring that up, because just this morning, my partner was saying that um, if a military junta were to take over now, that might actually be better than the road that we're currently set on. And I said that I would rather die than receive groceries that were delivered by soldiers to my door. So when I was talking about um, the possibility that the military has, I'm merely pointing out the failures of our nation state, not actually suggesting this as like a positive possibility, right? Because it's like, that is something that we would expect reasonably. Um, all of that being said, I um, I feel tempted to say that it's both. I feel like from the beginning of the Trump administration, people have been saying that like, he's too stupid to get anything done or whatever, right? This is kind of the liberal... Um, view of of what's happening Um, when in reality um, there's clearly something much more well planned happening we're seeing a huge shift in the expectations for our political discourse um, and the way that it's enacted Um, so I think that even though maybe we sort of blundered into this pandemic Uh, Although even that I feel really skeptical of. Uh, Haven't government reports shown that we have been more or less expecting a pandemic for several years now? Um, And so now it's like maybe it feels like we've blundered into this, but it definitely at the same time seems like I'm not saying that we're about to have a hostile to us military takeover. 
but if it's not now, it does seem like it could just be a couple of years from now and that this is simply setting up the framework for it. Yeah, um, I had uh, an additional comment about the, um, what I, in the comments called the Insta Army Cart, um, that, uh, you know, what, what we're currently doing is relying upon mostly people who, who are um, economically um, in an, a disadvantaged economic position, um, which of course primarily involves non-white people in the U.S. Um, but I think that unfortunately, even like if we did have a military, military junta delivering our groceries, um, it may not be the same exact people, but we would still largely be sacrificing the same kind of demographics. Um, since like, uh, and I, I'm tr I was trying to look for statistics here, um, but but our our military is also largely made up of of lower class people and and people of color. Um, so I think it would still be throwing the same kind of bodies at the problem. Um, and I, I don't have a solution for that, but I, but I think, um, like, even if, even if it still, it would seem maybe like a more organized way of dealing with this than Instacart. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily a more ethical way of doing so. And in addition, as, as Maria mentioned, I, I wouldn't be more comfortable with a military person showing up at my door, um. And I think we also need to, to talk about the issue of policing within this, um, especially since the military and the police force in the U.S. go hand in hand or, or, or are so close, closely related. Care to go on? Uh, no, I want to hear your thoughts first. Can you repeat what you just said? Um, yeah, just that, like, I think that we need to um, think about... Um, like policing within this and and how the police and the military go so hand in hand in the u.s um because initially as as miriam and i was also um you know since i was observing so many other countries dealing with this by having members of the military or the police force delivering supplies i also wondered you know if, if we would have the same phenomenon here um but, you know, since since the military and police force right. are so, like, intertwined in terms of strategies um, over policing of, of non-white communities um, here in the U.S., I think that um, if we were to have that kind yeah. of approach, it would, it would be terrifying um, for a whole different set of reasons, obviously. I do have a thought on that. And I'll provide my thought as a means of transitioning once again into perhaps the final phase of today's episode. So as you all know, we here on Santo Versus like to wrap up our episodes by thinking like not just our concluding thoughts, but like if this were um, our classroom and we if this was today's lesson on the topic, like what would we, what would our takeaway be to our students? And so to talk about the relationship between the police and the military and all of this, I think that I would say as my final lesson is that, so obviously we've all talked about that things are going to change and that things are not just going to go back to normal. But I think that I would advise people to um, 
really expect that like when we open up this economy again, whatever that means, in two months after that, in six months after that, that next year, we are going to be in a very different political and economic landscape. And we really need to think about these changes as they're happening because they could potentially happen very quickly. Like, I think that we should expect to see more economic consolidation. Businesses are going to go under and big capital is going to swoop in and take its place. I think hand in hand with that, we're going to see new levels of inequality in this country, both as people are losing their jobs and are getting worse jobs under a new economic model. And I think that coming with that is going to be new forms of policing. Like we've already gone to the store and seen like police officers guarding um, like expensive electronics. Well, I think that now like, look, hopefully I'm, I'm wrong about this. And I'm not necessarily trying to make a prediction. I'm not saying we should expect to see this. But I am saying, like, we should be prepared for the possibility of, like, there are going to be police officers at checkout counters keeping order. There are going to be, like, police officers patrolling aisles, seeing how much stuff we take. There are going to be police officers, like, figuring out for themselves how to, like, keep a new order in a new economy, in a new form formulation of inequality, or at least a gross exacerbations of all the worst parts of these things, as we've seen in the past. And so my once again, my lesson would be like don't don't assume that like I and I know that nobody thinks that anything is going to go back to normal. But my advice my my advice, my lesson would be like really really think about what's different because um it seems to me that a big part of like what we've what we've got going on here kind of tying into what griselda was saying about um like this attitude towards china and this militancy towards china we have a liberal party in our government which is as far left as it gets in mainstream politics that itself is becoming increasingly militant, increasingly committed to curtailing the welfare state, means testing the welfare state, or removing it. Whereas the right branch of our politics seems open to expanding that. And so what's it going to mean that we could potentially have, like what's the cost of all this going to be? What's the cost of all this change going to be? If things open up, if things get more stable, if welfare expands, what comes with it? And I think we need to be prepared to look at what that's going to be because I doubt it's going to be very positive. I feel scared. <laughs> what are your concluding thoughts? Um, I think that um, from my point of view as someone who focuses on visual culture, I would challenge my students to look closely at um, what images are being circulated right now and to think about the motivations behind the creation of those images and the images that I'm seeing um, are mainly of working class individuals 
um, trying to survive this uh, situation. And the people who are um, the people who have power right now are largely white, well, Anglo Protestant men um, in, you know, from uh, an upper class background. And um, that's that sure is a, you know, dichotomy right there. Um, and the other images that I'm seeing widely distributed are um, people of Asian descent as well, and usually not um, in a particularly, they're not being framed particularly in a positive light. Um, and I think that the visuals right now um, can help guide a discussion. Um, secondarily, or maybe not secondarily, but equally, I think that it's really important. Um, I would I would try and encourage my students uh, to think about what role capitalism has played in creating this mess um, on a variety of levels. And I think one of the most important ways that we can look at this situation um, is by taking a critical approach to the Anthropocene. Um, and maybe we'll do another episode on that. So I don't want to really talk too much about that. Um, but that would be, that's something that's really been on my mind for the last week or so. Who's next? Uh, I'll go next. Um, uh, I, so I, uh, I study narrative. And so, um, I have sort of two points to make related to that. The first is um, uh, Cardamom has brought up that in the show notes, I mentioned like, well, what if instead of wartime rhetoric, we were using like a different fun metaphor? Um, and I think I would really encourage my students to think about like part of what we've already discussed here, right? Like what is the wartime metaphor for? What is the wartime metaphor for? Um who is benefiting from the specific kinds of panic and anticipatory response that is embedded in it. Um, but then also like, what would the world be like if we were using a different metaphor? Um, what would our like utopian, well, maybe our utopian vision of this would be that it's not a metaphor and that instead we're taking illness at face value and we're like, confronting that there is no um, logic, there's no sense of punishment in the illness itself, there's no sense of politic within the virus itself, and that sometimes people just get sick, and sometimes people just die, and there's no American exceptionalism that'll have that make our experience different. Um, but we could also, if we are thinking of metaphors, imagine that it's like, what if we saw this as like, well, this is in a way a natural disaster. And so how can um, the ways that we learn to communicate with our immediate neighbors or with our like survival pods as the anarchists call it or anything like that, right? Like how can we start preparing for when climate change gets worse and worse because we will likely all be in a natural disaster at some point in our lives. Right. And so then this is kind of um, very unfortunately a 
practice for that, uh, a way for us to, to think about how we can prepare for that. Um, so that's just one thing that I had thought of. The other is that thinking of narratives, I feel like we are bombarded by two types of narrative um, regarding productivity. The first is that we somehow now have a ton of free time on our hands because we don't have to work. So we should do a lot of cool stuff like baking and brewing and learning French, right? All this stuff we never had time for. We should be getting ripped. You got to get your summer beach body ready uh, because Florida's already opening their beaches. <laughs> um, yeah, look at Billy. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, uh, so that's one side of it. And the other side is very much like, kind of still like we're in a war. So just make it through, but it's just like, eat whatever you want, sleep as much. Like if you need to sleep 20 hours a day, fucking do it because this is a pandemic and you come first now. So just like, it's all about self care. Don't do anything. Don't do work. Don't let your boss pressure you into doing work. And I felt really um, horrible about both of these because I don't want to learn French um, because I don't want to be productive in that sense. But I also don't want to like, I mean, not when this is over because this will never be over, but when we're done with the quarantine and we're done with social distancing, I don't want to look back and be like, well, that's three months of my life wherein I binge watched Money Heist five times, right? Like, <laughs> I want to feel that something happened just to sort of like reaffirm my own personhood. And so um, I was thinking about all of that and, uh, and I came across this, uh, I've mentioned the Nat Bishop before on our podcast and I came across this thing from the Nat Bishop. That's like, you know, people on the left think that like, we're going to rebuild a better society, but you're going to be too fucking tired to rebuild a better society when this is over. So take this time to rest. And for the Nat Bishop rest doesn't mean watch as much television as you want and sleep as much as you want. And like, don't worry about moving your body around or anything like that. For the Nat Bishop rest is very much a creative and historical analysis that you then like sort of meditate on through nap through the magic of napping right and so thinking about all of that i realized that the way that i want to be productive is um not by doing anything that will help my institution because wash you can fuck right off um and not by just like watching tv um but i want to um work on making myself the kind of community member that is going to be able to support other people um, when all of this is over, you know, I want to be able to like process what we're going through, what it means politically and have these conversations when we come out the other end of it. I will hopefully still have students then, although who knows if universities will still exist. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like to be able to talk about this and to be in like the emotional, like headspace where I'm not just going to be burnt out and exhausted and like, just losing myself inside of the quarantine. And, um, and so that would be the lesson that I would want my students to take away from that. It's like finding a way of being productive that isn't productive by capitalist standards, but by your own measure of um, having created something for yourself. For applause. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> uh, I'm still thinking through 
through mine and I and I I don't know if it will be fully articulated, so so bear with me. Um but yeah, I mean at the beginning of this I remember um Maria, you sent me um a meme and I, I had seen it on social media as well. Um that was like in three weeks we'll be seeing academic articles called Queering the Quarantine. <laughs> um, and you know, like yes, uh, I think it's um certainly like I, I, I laughed at that as well, like thinking like, yeah, like academia is is bullshit at this point in time. Um and it and it is. Um I still think it's it's taught me a lot of um perspectives that I that I wouldn't have learned a, about outside of academia, including like queer theory. And so I'm gonna queer this up a bit and just argue that like uh, uh, for my students, I would want them to think um, about, especially within within the context of this wartime rhetoric that has us like staying at home to protect others. Um, and the other day, my partner and I were watching TV and we saw this ad from Argentina because we were watching an Argentinian program. Um, and the ad was basically like, uh, you should look out for your older neighbors because they're someone's grandpa or aunt or whatever uh, and now they're your imagine them as your grandpa or aunt or whatever um, and so it's like just re re-articulating everything in the terms of the, the, the nuclear and or extended family so that you'll care about people mm-hmm. um, as if they were your biological family um, and so you know and and I admired kind of the the impetus behind the advertisement but at the same time like I think this is a a time when we need to be rethinking kinship to use really academic academic jargon, um, but yeah, I mean just like to re to really actually put action behind the centrist media that I mentioned earlier of like think being thankful and, and gracious towards the essential workers. Um, because as we've mentioned, like they are often the ones most impacted. They're the most likely to become ill. Um, and so just rethinking those terms of kinship and like who, who we should care about. And that's not just our biological families. Um, that's not just our partners, even though it is easy to isolate ourselves and become more atomized, um, sort of falling off of what you said, Maria, I would like to like educate myself and, like somehow get beyond my like individual somewhat selfish fear of just my myself and my own loved ones um, that I already knew being affected and like do something or some things that might help other people's loved ones, even if I have no immediate connection to them um, by ways of biology, uh, re- biological relation or even acquaintanceship, just like, being able to extend my purview beyond my family, beyond my neighborhood, beyond even our nation. Because I think since this has been such a shitty, um, shitty phenomenon for the U S we've also just been really focused on what's going on in the U S. Um, so I'd like to know what's going on in other places as well, I guess. That was a lot packed into a little package or maybe a longer package than it should have been. Beautiful. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Before we uh, call it a night, has anybody been doing anything cool? I'm making um, 
soda in my closet. Did we? We didn't do this on this recording, did we? No. Aren't you always recording? <laughs> I'm making soda in my closet. I'm trying to. Um, I got these uh, water kefir grains, and I'm trying to make uh, to remake cola, but less sugar, more probiotics. Um, yeah, and I think I'm going to make a small batch beer sometime. I've got um, the beer ingredients. I've always like held myself back because I don't have like big equipment, but I have small equipment, so maybe I can make small beers. I'll name it after Santo. Yeah. What are you going to call it? TBD. Okay. Maybe I need to taste it first. I know what its character is. I have been running every day. And running? Yes, um, which is not interesting or cool or unique, except for it is for me because I hate running. I hate it. Um, I'd rather do any other form of exercise, but there's not a lot of different activities that I can do like my normal stuff. I can't really do. Um, but I downloaded an app to like map, um, where I've been running and how much I've been running and how much time. And I ran over 20 miles this week. Oh my God. I know it's crazy. I've never, I've never run that much ever in my life. Um, but the thing that has actually been rewarding about it, because really the I'm running to just try and neutralize the stress, um, is that uh, I've branched a little bit out of just my, I'm, I'm in my neighborhood completely. Um, and, and like really not leaving like a mile radius of where I live. But um, I'm noticing a lot of like, oh, I'll be running by somebody's house and I'll see some sort of plant they have and I'll like, you know, get an opportunity to think about how pretty that is. And, um, you know, I think that it's been more of a mental type of thing for me than a physical type of thing, which was unexpected. But yeah, the probably the most off um, brand I've been during the during the quarantine has been running. Um, my most off brand thing has been that it was a week into the quarantine and I, um, set up an altar to pray at. And I know that I'm the only one of us who's not like a thorough atheist. So I want to remind you that I don't usually pray, um, even though I'm a great Christian and, um, and it's, uh, and so I just set up this, like, I didn't have, like, I don't have religious items because I'm not very religious. And so I just like propped up a bunch of things that meant a lot to me, like at a table and like lit some religious candles around them. And so each of you has like some emblem, like something that you've given me is at that table, um, along with a couple other like fun sort of witchy looking knickknacks and I like legit like pray there several times a week just like praying for safety for people that I care about and for like a better society um and out of that also came um this uh this idea that I had already mentioned in the wrap-up of like uh being being productive in a very specific way so I've started writing um 
personal essays, just like from my reflections about all this stuff I've been reading. I've been doing some like anarchist readings um, and some like uh, non-violence forms of resistance readings. And uh, it's all going into a diary that I keep in my altar, like a... Whoa! I don't recognize. Yeah. On the altar now. Cardamom, gotten up to anything? Clay. Hi. Yeah. Um, well, this isn't exactly. Isn't it an out of character? Um, I have always, always, uh, for the past several years, had mixed feelings about the institution of the marriage. Um, uh, just because. It's, it's been problematic for a lot of people, but I, but I also, we're all full of internal contradictions. And so I also want to marry my partner. And so I've been um, looking for ethically sourced engagement rings and thinking about um, an either post quarantine proposal or um, if the quarantine goes on forever, maybe a during quarantine proposal. <laughs> um, so... And my partner here forever, but do you want to wear this in the meantime? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I guess I should get my ring ordered soon before the mail shuts down completely. Uh, but yeah, but my part and my partner sort of knows this because we like have talked about like because you yeah. live together and you're talking yeah. about it in the same room that they are right exactly. now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to hide secret engagement plans when you're together 24-7. Uh, but yeah, that's what I've been doing. All right, guys. <laughs> well, um, you know, um, start a sourdough starter. Um, uh, put birdseed on your windowsill. And wash your hands a bunch. Uh, I'm Billy Pilgrim here with uh, the other guys. Zelda Hex. Maria Felix. And then I'm sending. See you later.